From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Colin Donovan. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Friday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. Our very own Vice President of Theology, Colin Donovan. Not our Vice President of Information Services, I might add, but our Vice President of Theology, as Colin struggles with his computer here, is here to answer your questions about theology, not about information services. I blame whoever was before me in this room or in this chair, possibly. So Monday we will have a battle royale, a cage match between Dr. David Anders and Colin Donovan. The first one to get their computer to boot up will uh, will be declared the winner. And uh, at any rate, Colin is here. I am here, yes. Ready here. to answer your questions. The number is 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, that number is 1-205-271-2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. And you can always send us an email. That email address is openline at EWTN. Dot com. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Kubensky and Jeff Burson handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host is he is every Friday, Colin Donovan. How are you? I'm doing pretty good, actually. Uh, Matt writes in, my wife is Catholic and I am Methodist. I want her to come to church with me every other Sunday. Will she be meeting her Sunday obligation if she attends my church? She thinks she must go to her Mass. Uh, no, she would not be. Uh, you, you can meet your obligation by going to the Mass or the Divine Liturgy in a Catholic rite, which means of the, of the Western Church or of the Eastern Church in communion with Rome. So uh, non-Catholic uh, churches uh, of any color stripe would not satisfy the obligation. There can be exceptions, obviously, for going to Mass, such as you're traveling, you're sick, the weather, and so on. Um, so, but that would fall mainly on you. It wouldn't, uh, it wouldn't, it wouldn't, you couldn't satisfy uh, your obligation by going to her church. So um, I'm, I'm supposing this is something you will have to work out in an amicable, amicable way with, with your wife and, and encourage her to participate in, in the Mass when she can. Uh, and otherwise uh, satisfy your obligations to God. 833-288-EWTN, that's our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. We've got an email here from Lisa, Colin, and fair warning, my wife will be ready to critique your answer to this Uh-oh, question. Uh-oh. Lisa wants to know, where does the church stand on energy healing and chakras? Well, of course, this is a description coming out of uh, even the terms uh, out of the East. Uh, their chakras, I guess, are something a little bit more than your vertebrae, but they, you know, follow your nervous system. 
uh, and have certain spiritual significances in um, in in Eastern Eastern religions or some Eastern religions. The church's standing is that we may we may not uh, use and participate in things which, by their nature, are in, intrinsically tied up with a non-Christian religion, and that would be in this respect or or any others, uh, any pagan pagan religions and so on. So that's our obligation. The church admits that there can be natural reasons why things work. The debate is out on things like acupuncture and some other things as to whether there are natural causations uh, at effect there. But that's not the point here. The point is, is doing them uh, because of a spiritual basis. So in the case of the terminology, sure, there may be some natural foundation for it. What there not is, is in the case of spiritual practice or physio healing practices which suggest that we can manipulate impersonal energies of the universe or whomever or whatever uh, because such things simply do not exist. Uh, You may clearly, we know we have a nervous system that can be manipulated by massage and different things. That's, That's simply, you know, everyday kind of stuff. But once you're making an appeal beyond the natural constitution of the human body to something beyond it for healing purposes, that is not God, but some impersonal spiritual force or energy, this is a violation of the first commandment. It suggests that there are such things, and there are not. The church would classify them into two categories. Those who are with God, the angels, they are not energy, they are persons. And those who are against God, they are not energies, they are fallen persons, the demons. Those are the two categories in which independent forces, energies, or beings uh, exist. Everything else is material or human. Uh, So you either have to find an explanation in the material world or in the human world, but you can't go beyond that to some vague spiritual world and suggest that you are appealing to, to anything other than those who are not with God. Is the human world different than the material world? Because of the spirit, yes, we are in the material realities and spiritual realities. Angels and man are spiritual and men are spiritual and material. Uh, nature is material, although we have a human nature that is composed also of matter. Uh, but it, was this a philosophy show today? How I thought many, it was a theology How, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin? An infinite number, because they don't occupy space. Is that positive infinity or negative <laughs> infinity? <laughs> I would guess it's an existing real real being as opposed to imagined okay. beings, yes. All right, my, my, my head hurts now. Yeah. 833-288-EWTN is, my to- is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Michael writes in, How do I respond to Protestant friends who challenge the sacrament of confession? It's in the scripture, although they won't admit it. On Easter night... My peace I give you. So he came to reconcile and bring peace between his father and mankind. And to the apostles, he gave the control, the, the mission to extend that peace. Who, uh, my peace I give, leave you, my peace I give you. Followed him by, whose sins you shall forgive, they are forgiven. Whose sins you shall retain, they are retained. The church was given the authority to forgive sins in the name of Christ. Was given the power 
And we know that human nature could do this because when Jesus healed the paralytic, he didn't say that you may know that the Son of God may forgive sin. He said, may you know that the Son of Man, which was a euphemism for human being. There is no strict word in Hebrew or Aramaic for that. Son of Man is a human being. Human beings delegated by God can minister the graces of God as the human nature of Christ did in healing the paralytic and explaining that fact to the Pharisees who challenged him. So the church has that power. And how does the church exercise that power? It has taken different forms in, in, in different times, but since uh, the, uh, the, towards the end of the patristic era, uh, there, there, we don't know exactly how what confession consisted in in the first centuries, but the idea of an individual confession where the person uh, came forward and, and uh, told the priest their sins, and he made a discernment between whether they're, if they're being honest, he, he would absolve them. If you're being dishonest and obviously just not really sorry, then he retained, which is the meaning of that that passage, what the rabbis did in, in other matters to make decisions between uh, two things. And so that was given to the church, and that ex ministry is, is exercised by the church. The form it takes, as I said, uh, varies. It was very harsh in the early church. There was like one big penitential period, and you stood in ashes, and you awaited the Easter vigil to receive communion again. And sometimes you couldn't guarantee that you could be forgiven a second time. Rome decided you could be when it was put before the, uh, the Bishop of Rome in the 3rd century. And from there is the beginning of the evolution of the form of, of the sacrament and its exercise as we see it in the church today. And that was kind of a long, deeply seated attitude back then because it kind of led to uh, people waiting until their deathbed to be baptized, right. huh? Uh, get to be baptized uh, and also to get absolved and return. And what could you do? You might wait until you were dying and you you may have been baptized, but if you wait till you're dying to be forgiven your sins and you die in mortal sin, well, there's one destination for that. So for the good of the church, and I think in the, also, and we, we always forget contextually, the early ages, you were either for or against Christ because of the persecutions. So there was a notable change when we had peace and freedom. And when we have prosperity today, it's even worse than just peace and freedom. 833-288-EWTN. It's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. Great opportunity for you with the EWTN online learning series, In His Sandals. Discover the beauty, truth, and goodness of the church with the EWTN online learning series. You can delve into the riches of the faith and grow closer to the Lord with free videos and study guides. EWTN invites you to be still and sit with the Lord through In His Sandals or online video reflections with EWTN chaplain Father Joseph Mary Wolf. Enroll in our, in our courses today at learningseries.com. 
www.ewtn.com. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. We've got open lines for you at 833-288-3986. First up today is Angela. She is in North Dallas, Texas, listening on Guadalupe Radio. Angela, thanks so much for holding. Welcome to the program. Okay, thank you. Um, my husband is Protestant. I'm Catholic. The main one big debate right now is he thinks the way to worship God is stand in front of the TV, play beautiful songs, put your hands up in the air, and sing. Okay, that's his, that's worshiping <laughs> to him, and which he wants me to do with him. Let's worship together. Um, and I'm and I'm telling him no, it's the mass and the sacrifice of the mass. That's what God actually asked mm-hmm. for. And of course, he cites David and all of this. We go through the Bible together, and he saved David and how he sung in front of the tabernacle and mm-hmm. had a whole, whole group of people, you know, destined. You know, well, we we do that was, too, you know. Like, you can tell yeah. them we do that. That's yeah, the we do, that's we do in the church. We have a tabernacle. Like, we have a group of people, and Jesus is there. Yeah, um, I just tell them <laughs> that's not quite enough. That's why I won't just stay here with you. I'm still going to mass. Yeah. Um, what's what's the meaning worship? What is it that Yeah. Well, it can have multiple meanings, but basically it means to render to God in justice that which is due to him. Uh, We use different words when it's not God. We talk about the veneration of Our Lady and the Saints, or we can even talk about the, the honor and obedience and respect that children should have for their parents. It's to render justice to that person to whom we have a debt, uh, in thanksgiving for that debt. So how do we do that? We do it in the way that Jesus himself said at the Last Supper. This is what the Catholic Church has done for now. Well, we'll have probably the 2,000th anniversary whenever we celebrate the Jubilee of the, of the Redemption here in another, within the next decade. But what we do when we do in remembrance of him the consecration of the bread and the wine and the receiving of his body and blood. This is why the Mass is the highest worship. Our Lord said to the apostles, do this in remembrance of me, and he showed them what this was. And he gave his body and blood as he promised earlier and is recounted in the Gospel of John. He gave his body and blood because this is the intermediary between our human nature and the divine nature because in him it is one. And so we receive him sacramentally, and in this way we are united to the Father and the Spirit through him. So a liturgist or a liturgical theologian would dis, uh, worship, uh, say it would mean to render to God through the Son what is owed, owed to God the Father through the Son what is owed to him in doing it in the Holy Spirit so that all three divine persons are united in the act. The priest comes and he, in carrying on his part of it, he becomes, is the one who brings us into that. He has the the power, Christ gave the apostles to consecrate the bread and the wine that it may be done in remembrance of that last supper as well as the sacrifice, passion and death and resurrection that came after it. All of that is caught up in the, in the mystery of the Holy Eucharist. And when the Eucharist is celebrated, the priest offers Christ, acting in the person of Christ himself, to the Father as the complete and full propitiatory sacrifice for our sins. 
He does it sacramentally, meaning obviously it's been accomplished once for all by God, by Christ. But this is how in all ages and places, from the rising of the sun to its setting, as the prophet Malachi said, a pure offering would be given to the Lord, the Mass is the way it is that is actually fulfilled from the rising of the sun to the setting, because in every time zone in the world, every day, uh, we can make the technical exception of, of Good Friday when there is no Mass, there's just a communion service, and on Holy Saturday when the Mass is the Easter vigil, late in the day. But throughout the world, this sacrifice, this unblemished sacrifice, Christ himself has offered to God. That's worship. We unite into it. In a way, we can't do it. We can't do it any more than we could save ourselves before Christ came into the world. We do it because Jesus gave us the way to unite ourselves to him, worshiping the Father so that it's his worship with which we join. You can't do that in front of the television. In fact, I was a kid when the first black and white box showed up in the living room in the mid-50s. And before that, I'm sure your husband would admit, there was worship in the world before you could sing and pray before the television. And there has been. Why? Because the church has been offering the sacrifice of the Mass in all places and times that it has gone ever since the crucifixion. And our Lord himself gave us that example in the story of the road, uh, the way to Emmaus, where he opened the scriptures and they recognized him in the breaking of their bed. And that was the euphemism that was used in the early church for the Eucharist. The breaking of the bread because they were hiding the secret of what took place in the liturgy from the persecutors, the Romans. And so that euphemism lasted for quite a long time. Uh, and they even moved the Mass from the Liturgy of the Word to the Eucharist to a different place in order to keep those who were not already baptized and in the Church from knowing and profaning the sacrifice of the Eucharist. And this went on for hundreds of years until Constantine. So there's a long history and understanding among Catholics of what worship entails. And I think we have to have the humility to say, we don't really worship very well, but will we unite what we can do to what Christ does in his sacrifice through the Eucharist, then we are worshiping perfectly because he is doing it and we are joining ourselves to him. That's the big difference right there. You know, Angela, that's as comprehensive an answer as I think you'll find, and I would encourage you to check out the encore of this broadcast. It'll be up in a couple hours after the show at EWTN.com slash radio. But in the meantime, I can give you the Reader's Digest version of it. Uh oh <laughs> The essence of religion is worship. Yes. And the essence of worship is sacrifice. That's right. And that's what's perpetuated in an unbloody fashion in every Mass sacramentally, that we see that sacrificial action in which body and blood are separated, signifying death, and thereby we sacramentally enter into the mystery of Christ's very own passion, death, and resurrection. And the resurrection is when we receive him in Holy Communion, and we are now whole in him. How's that, Angela? Well, excellent. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. We appreciate the phone call. Uh, Martha is in the great state of California listening on the EWTN app today. Martha, you're on with Colin Donovan. Hello. I am so glad you took my phone call. I am wondering, there's a movement out here where I live, and it's called Divine Will Era, and... Um, 
they, they really put, like, Luisa Picaretta on a pedestal, and they say that the church totally endorses it. And uh, I'm thinking, okay, um, is that true? Well, the word totally is a bit uh, over the top. Um, Luisa Picaretta has a cause. Uh, after she, apparently, she lived a very holy life. Nobody doubts that. Uh, the priest who was her confessor is himself already a canonized saint, uh, Saint Hannibala de Francia. And uh, so it's a, serious, it's a serious idea, and her writings are serious. The difficulty comes in the way they've sometimes been erroneously interpreted. And in the 1990s, there was a good deal of that in North America, and the vice postulator of the cause made a good uh, made a trip to the United States and met with a great many people, uh, including uh, Deacon Bill Steltemeyer and myself. And uh, he wanted to emphasize certain points from the point of view of the postulation, which is run out of the Archdiocese of Trani, where she lived and died. And so, all of that information as what was had been decided at that point and what was encouraged at that point is on our website. If you go and uh, you look under our Catholicism section for mystics and apparitions and you dig down or in, in the Catholicism answers and mystics and apparitions, you will find a whole section dedicated to Louisa, which has the documents that we were given in those days. The status of the cause is that it uh, it made it through the diocesan phase where the Diocese of Origin documents it and draw, comes to a conclusion regarding the heroic virtues of the person, and this was decided positively, that she lived a holy life. Because of complexities with the writings, that element of it was, has been postponed in passing it on to Rome, so that the, the dicast, now called the dicastery for the, for the saints, uh, is dealing uh, with the matter presented to them back in 2005 of her virtues, her life, and the, the dicastery now of the uh, doctrine will deal with the matter of the writings and their interpretation. And there are some rules and norms uh, around all of that which are present on our website as well. And every couple years, the a new archbishop, I think we're on the third one since those days, the, the archbishop will will write a letter to the association which promotes her, and he will, you know, congratulate them on their work to do the usual things that bishops do with uh, bodies in their uh, diocese, and also uh, encourage them in their work, and also point to the proper limits of what they do. And all of that is on our website in the material. Uh, so it amounts to this, that nothing should be done apart from what uh, the postulation, the Archdiocese of Trani and the Archbishop there has commanded, or which the, uh, the Dicastery for the Faith has commanded. And that is, we must certainly be true, con uh, make sure that authentic r writings are the ones being used, because there are translations made from writings which the translations, the process is very difficult that were not authorized, particularly in English. And these are the, this is the reason he came over here in the 1990s and to talk to a group of people who were faithful uh, to uh, the Divine Will movement and to interested parties like us from EWTN. And so 
The thing is to do everything in a proper order, because could God's will embrace anything other than fidelity to the church and doing everything in union with your own bishop and using writings which are approved by the church and those who have moral and legal responsibility for translations. That's key. Be faithful to the church because that is truly keeping the divine will. 833-288-EWTN. It's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Wide open phone lines for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Pick up the phone and give us a call here on Open Line Friday. We're talking to Martha in California, Colin, about the Divine Will Movement and Luisa Picaretta. And uh, I think you wanted to kind of put a bow and a summary yeah. on the conversation with really sort of a direct answer to her question. Right, yeah. And uh, as I said, all the material uh, can be found on our website. Go to Catholicism, Answers, uh, Mystics, and Private Revelation. And there underneath that you'll find a whole section, number of things can interconnected under Louisa and the Divine Will. The summary is this, is there are prayer groups and texts out there uh, some of which are where the those individuals involved are operating in union with their own bishop and following the rules, and there may be others who are not. I don't track this. That's not why I'm paid to do. But it's very important, as I said, to make sure that if you're invited to participate in this, that it has the support of the bishop of your diocese, because ultimately he is the one responsibility, responsible. The, the Archbishop in Italy, he doesn't have responsibility for those people. The people of God there are under the care of your own bishop. And so make sure that he's content with what is going forward. If you do that, you've, you've knocked off about 90% of what really your responsibility is in this matter. And with regarding the text, it's quite clear that uh, the, the slow boat has been uh, recommended. In other words, to wait for newly approved texts with doctrinal footnotes that will be produced out of the congregation, out of the dicastery for the faith, and the experts in the employ of the postulancy, there will be eventually a text that is footnoted appropriately explaining the difficult passages which have caused people to do wacko things and think silly things like if I only say this prayer every day I am living in the divine. No, it's no more than any other spiritual practice by which one lives in the, in the, in the divine providence for example, the little way of, the, of St. Therese. Anything that causes us to be always faithful and attentive to the will of God which was being asked for us in the moment is in that sense to live in communion with the divine will. So any exaggerations regarding this are inevitably going to be demonstrated to be false and illegitimate. And that's why it's important with regard to the text and the practices not to be consumed by a fervor which suggests, you know, uh, and, and usually this is always wrong. when you, you, You're the only group of people in the world who are really doing this right. Once you get that, there's pride at the root of that, not the humility which Louisa herself evidenced in her life. Always, always faithful to 
the decisions of her spiritual director and the, who are always appointed by her bishop. So that's the care that is called for in this case and in really in all mystical cases because it's easy to get uh, misled by the sense that, oh, I've got something really special here and I'm going to run with it. And uh, if the church eventually catches up, well, that would be nice, but not necessary. Uh, next up is Tara, a first-time listener in Columbus, Ohio, listening on St. Gabriel Radio. Tara, you're on with Colin Donovan. Tara, are you there? Yes. What's your question today? Hi, Hi my, my question, yes, I'm, I'm here. Yeah, if you could turn the radio down, Tara, that's what's throwing you off. My my question is: Does um, the divine will movement coincide with the charismatic movement? No, not at all. I mean, like anything Catholic, will have multiple degrees of intersection. But you have sacred heart devotion, you have immaculate heart devotion, you've got devotion to Our Lady of Guadalupe, or you know, all every, all kinds of ways of devotions to Jesus or the saints or the angels. Obviously, any truly Catholic devotion will have multiple intersections with each other. Uh, the charismatic renewal is, is not the divine will movement, and the divine will movement is not the charismatic renewal. Uh, there may or may not be people who uh, associate with either of those or both, neither or both for that matter. Um, and so I think uh, that's the, basically the answer to your question, unless you had some further clarification or question on that. God bless you, Tara. We appreciate the phone call. Congratulations going out to another member of the EWTN radio family. Clarkston Catholic Radio in Clarkston, Washington is celebrating their eighth year with EWTN. Congratulations to John Fazari and KFUZ 103.3 from all of us here at EWTN Radio. Michael P. is watching us on YouTube. He says, why does English-speaking Catholics kneel during the entire Eucharistic prayer while French-speaking Catholics kneel only for the consecration and then stand for the second half of the Eucharistic prayer? That some of the rubrics were within the liberty of the National Bishops' Conferences to uh, recommend to Rome that it be done a particular way. And so, uh, for example, in Canada, English and French speaking, there, there's not the kneeling through the whole Eucharistic prayer. But going back to the, uh, to the beginning of the use of the 1970 Missal, uh, the U.S. bishops uh, retained the traditional practice of the, uh, of the kneeling throughout the, and also kneeling down again for the Agnus Dei. There's also some places where you find a difference of practice. All of those are governed by the what's called the faculties or permission or indult sought from Rome by bishops' conferences when they first published or maybe with a republication of the Missal, such as that which came out in the 2000s in most places. Uh, they sought from Rome the permission to do it that way, and they got it. So it's, uh, it's, it's legitimate, and it's a... a Something of a variety between national conferences. I got, a, I got a secret for you. What's that? They do it that way in some dioceses in the United States also. Well, and along the border, they, that was a, one of the permissions that were given is because along the border there were a lot of uh, uh, Mexican-Americans whose families would visit them from, uh, the, from south. You could find people in, say, Matamoros and Brownsville 
who were related, but some were U.S. citizens, others were Mexican. And so rather than have confusion, the bishops had the ability to say, well, we will, you know, we will follow what's done in Mexico. And it's a more Hispanic part of the country than most of Texas. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. We've still got time for your calls at 833-288-3986. Alex would like to know, how should I tell my Protestant friend about purgatory? Tell them that uh, if they can understand the idea of paying for breaking something, uh, what is it uh, Colin Powell called that during the Gulf War? The, the uh, pottery barn rule or something like that. If you go in and you break something in pottery barn, uh, you're going to end up paying for it. You break it, you pay, you pay for it. What happens in the salvation, in the redemption, is that Christ does what we cannot do. Because in our sin, there are eternal aspects, the offense against God, and when it's a grave sin, there's an offense against God. That's the part we can't repair. Christ brought peace between the Father and mankind. He can't, we cannot bridge that gulf. Then there's the temporal part, the consequences, the reparative part, if you will, that we can do. So Jesus makes uh, this quite clear in, in a number of the stories in the parable that is so, in the Sermon on the Mount, you know, to, to settle with your opponent while on your way to the judge. And in there is implied, first of all, this idea that redemption and charity doesn't do away with justice. It fulfills and satisfies it. In our case, it makes its satisfaction have an eternal value before God because it bridges that breach. But it also points us to purgatory, where there is a purification of the temporal things. So we can do this. The church has many ways in which we, we can obviously we can pray, we can do penance, we can do things in this life. And many of the saints have attested that it is better to do that in this life than to go to purgatory. Which, although it's not in time, you know, if you think about serial pur purification it's sort of kind of like time even though it's not temporal in the sense that we appreciate it so better not to go through that serial purification which is the love of god purifying and changing us completely better to do that here on earth to do the prayer and the penance to live such that we are always sorry for having offended god even though we know with great gratitude, perfect gratitude, that we've been, we've been forgiven. You know, it's sort of like if somebody gives you a gift, and it's a great gift, maybe an inheritance or a fancy new car, and you receive it from them and you say, oh, thank you, I've needed this car, and this is such a beautiful car. And the next time you saw them, you say, hey, I'm in a rush, I've got to get on my way, don't have time for you. No, we tend to always be grateful for gifts. Well, our gratitude should encompass trying to repair the damage that our sins have done. The civil courts require this. You stole the money, Jack, you got to give it back. You know, you took a life, you're going in a jail for a life. 
uh, whatever it is. You, 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 you slandered somebody's good name. You must publicly now tell people that and restore their good name. Even forgiveness requires reparation, the restoration of the damage that was done. And we do it in this life or we do it in the next. And I think perhaps the, the greatest example of that is the Sermon of the, Sermon of the Mount where our Lord get, uses that, that example. And there's even an Old Testament uh, example in the second book of Maccabees, which Protestants don't accept because Luther and others threw it out. Um, and that is that Judas Maccabeus sent an offering to the temple for men he were afraid might have shown superstition which would be a, a sin against God. Maybe not a great, great, deadly sin, but superstition is a sin uh, against God, a lack of confidence in him, because they wore an amulet when they went into the battle and they died wearing that amulet. And so he sent a sacrifice to the temple that they would be forgiven that sin. Well, they're dead. What was he saying? So the seed was there that Jesus could point to this idea of post-death reparation, and that's what purgatory is. If I broke your window... You'd have to pay it. And you said, Jack, I forgive you. Yeah. Fact remains... Where's the money, Window's still buddy? broken, right? Yeah. 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 Or the idea of indulgence. A father who makes his child, you know, will go tell Mr. Smith, you're sorry, you're the one who broke his window, and you will give me your allowance for the next six weeks to pay for that repair. And the father pays all of it. And about halfway through the son paying him back, he says, okay, that's enough. I think you understand the value of, of this. And he takes the rest. That's what an indulgence is. God understanding the value of our meager and meek little efforts to repair what we've done. And then he indulges us by taking away the rest. That's what an indulgence does for us. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Pat is another first-time listener in New Rochelle, New York, listening on Veritas Catholic Radio. Pat, you're on with Colin Donovan. Oh, hi. I'm so thrilled to be able to talk to you. Um, what is my obligation in the, in the case of, like, somebody that I know full well they're um, going to Mass, they're receiving communion, and yet they're, um, for example, a nurse who's helping people get abortions, or, mm-hmm. um, I mean, what is my obligation? Should I go to the priest? Should I keep out of it, or, or what? Well, uh, our Lord gives us uh, threefold stages of that. Go to the person, take another with you, and bring then bring it to the church. So if you know of a nurse, she may be thinking she's doing a charity, but that's a material cooperation in a grave evil. Uh, And so it's tantamount to a formal cooperation. So morally speaking, it is the excommunical offense of abortion. If she's aware of that, well, then she's got more offenses than whatever. And and Pat should probably approach her as though she assumes that she doesn't know. Right. That would be the way that, you know, don't approach it condemningly, but, you know, uh, you know, Mary, do you, do you know that uh, you, I see you, are you not still a, a nurse for, you know, Dr. Jones? She says, oh, no, I left him because I got, you know, I, I understood, realized finally the evil of what was going on in there. She may already have given that up. Or she says, no, I'm still doing that because women need my help, especially with the government doing what it's doing, blah, 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 in the Supreme Court. 
Well, then you should know that that degree of cooperation in abortion is excommunicable, and if you doubt me, you should go find a priest who uh, will explain that to you because uh, you're compounding it by going to communion, and leave it at that. And then if you see her going and going again, you could probably go with somebody else. That would be a biblical thing. And then go to the pastor. So that would be the, the threefold way of doing it. That's right out of sacred scripture. You know, to give the person the charity of maybe they don't understand when they're obstinate and they clearly understand but are doing it anyway, you know, to, to raise the antics uh, a little bit. Thanks, Pat. We appreciate the call today. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Join us for the Holy Mass, the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, right here from Our Lady of the Angels Chapel in Irondale, every day, 8 a.m. Eastern Time, except Good Friday, as Colin pointed out earlier, uh, right here at EWTN, and uh, you can see it on EWTN television and hear it on EWTN radio. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Gwen would like to know, when Jesus was a baby, did he know that he was God or have full knowledge of God? The doctrine of the Church, which follows from the doctrine of the Incarnation, although it's not been positively stated this way, is that from the moment of his existence as God and man, it was one, he is a, the person is the second person of the Trinity, and the natures are human and divine. Therefore, the person who was animating his body and his soul, his intellect and his will, was the Son of God. There is no way that he did not know. He did not yet have, humanly speaking, the uh, physiological basis for for uh, knowledge, human knowledge, sensory knowledge. But the person, Christ, did know. And he was never in doubt about who he was. He never was in doubt about his mission. He never in doubt about why he came here and his agreement with the, his willing what the Father willed. Uh, that, uh, that, that simply follows from the doctrine of the Incarnation and the hypostatic union of the of the, the word. I would like to make, to make one form of my answer I gave to the, to the lady on the abortion. Mm -hmm, right. I, I would think that, the, that in this particular case it would merit then going to the pastor rather than trying to get another person. Uh, once they've manifested a degree of, you know, yeah. disregard, I think, take it to the pastor and it's in his, it's in his court at that point. Uh, Gwen writes in when Jesus. I just read that one. Ted writes in. <laughs> We're going to give you a double dip today, Gwen. Ted writes in. What are the Gnostic Gospels? How can I respond to someone who says that the Catholic Church has a conspiracy theory to suppress these Gospels? <laughs> where are the Gnostics today? Well, that would be one question. <laughs> if they are of God, where are they today? As we're told in Scripture, well, if this Jesus fellow is a charlatan, then surely it will he will die out. Uh, so. This is this is what um, this is one argument I think you could make. Uh, certainly, the the church's existence, continuous existence, and for that matter, the other churches of apostolic origins, which were formerly in communion with the Catholic Church, the Eastern or the Orthodox of the of various kinds, 
all of these go back to, to, to Christ and the apostles. That's what the apostolic uh, succession means. The Catholic Church has the Peter and his successor. Uh, that's what sets it apart as the, uh, the, the principle of unity is, is Peter. Uh, it was in the first century. It is now. So that distinguishes it. So I think it's, um, you know, the argument about the Gnostics would be they, they were quite different among themselves. They proposed a special knowledge which you were, you were called to participate in, a knowledge which perfected not salvation but your knowledge. We have organizations that follow that. In many ways, Freemasonry is a Gnostic uh, uh, group because it has all of these teachings about the unity of mankind and Masonry represents his brotherhood of man and going back to Solomon's temple. Uh, but what is the fruit of that? What is the evidence of that? There, there really isn't. But there's the idea that knowledge is somehow the key thing. In the church, it's always been love that was the key thing. In the early church, they didn't say to, uh, the, the Romans didn't say of the Christians, see how much they know. They said, see how they love each other. See how they take care of the poor. So knowledge is important. Faith, the doctrines, the word, meaning faith, meaning doctrine, ultimately, of course, meaning Christ. This is important. But the ultimate thing is the, the love, the communion. And the church expresses that as a reality going back over 2,000 years because of this, not just the apostolic succession, but the communion of love which that represents, that we're in communion with the Pope and the bishops today, and thereby with all the Catholics who are in communion with every other Pope and every other legitimate bishop going back to, to the ap days of the apostles, to Timothy and Titus, Paul's first bishops as far as we know that he created. So this unity of love, of communion, is one of the best signs of witness to the truth of the Catholic faith, that it has existed from the beginning. And with it, the unity in the seven sacraments and the unity in the word, in the teachings, not just the word of scripture, but in all that the word of scripture implies and eventually would be discovered by the church as the Holy Spirit led it to all truth, as Jesus promised at the Last Supper. Um, did you just read this? Will you just answer I did not get to that. Jim? Okay. So uh, Jim in South Dakota called in, and he wants to know, what, if anything, can be done about the fact that China is publishing their own Bibles? <laughs> one, of the ch one of the changes they're making is that Jesus does not pick up a rock and a stone and stone the woman caught. One of the changes is they say that Jesus does pick up a rock and stones the woman caught in adultery. <laughs> I, I guess, is this their justification for Tiananmen Square or something? I mean, uh, look in the mirror, people, for heaven's <laughs> sakes. There's not a lot you can do. They're a sovereign country, and they use force to accomplish what they, uh, what they see to be is their will and their responsibility. They're using it against the church today, and the church is valiantly trying to survive in an environment which is extremely hostile to it. 
Um, with all goodwill, I think the Holy See entered into agreements with them in this respect and is trying to make, make them work, but they're not getting the cooperation that they hope for. But nonetheless, it does mean that Catholics can continue to receive the sacraments and to read the Bible. But we'll, we'll wait and see what happens, what is, how this new Bible will be promulgated. Uh, there is a segment on uh, EWTN Nightly News you can probably watch and podcast online if, if anyone wants to hear about this uh, controversy. Uh, and the bottom line of it that I got out of it last night was that we don't really know what this means. You know, is it an actual change of wording, as this gentleman who appeared suggested, where they actually change the text and Jesus actually participates in the stoning? Or is it sort of a socialist-communist explanation at the footnotes? So I think that remains to be seen, but ultimately the voice of the Church will rise above that in the hearts of the authentic faithful, and we can count on God for that result. We don't need to depend on the Chinese Communist Party for it. Uh, Rolf wants to know, what's the role of the devil's advocate in the canonization of saints? They call him the uh, advocate for justice now. Uh, that was sort of the colloquial term that people used. He's to see that all arguments of truth are, are respected. Uh, in other words, nothing is covered up. No laundry is hidden in the closet, you know, thrown outside the window before it can be examined. That's what his role is, and to ensure that, uh, that it proceeds in a just fashion, you know, neither hastily or precipitously and all the things that could be involved in the doing of that. So that reason humanly, humanly the result will be legitimate and correct. The ultimate decision comes from God when by a miracle the results of the process are verified for beatification and canonization. But the human element, the dotting of the I's and the crossing of the T's are done by the church using the church's theology to judge this as best as human beings can, then the charism of the church shows us and protects the church from canonizing somebody who would be uh, disproof of uh, the church of the salvation uh, that comes through Christ and his church. Well, that brings to a close another great week of EWTN's Open Line. On behalf of our host, Colin Donovan, our producer, Michael McCall, call screener, Matt Gubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in. Back at it again Monday with Father John Tregilio. Until we get together then, have a great weekend, and God bless.